Hey, this is Josh Levine, the host of One Year. I hope you've been enjoying our season on 1986. This is our seventh and final episode, but I've got some good news for you. We're coming back for another season, and it's going to be coming your way very soon. Stay tuned after this episode to learn what year we're doing next and how you can help us out. Now, on with our show. I got obsessed with The Man from Fifth Avenue as soon as I found out it existed. It's one of the most important movies of 1986, but I'm guessing you've never heard of it. That's because it aired on Soviet television. The Man from Fifth Avenue is a documentary about life in the United States from a Soviet perspective. It opens with an overhead shot of the Statue of Liberty and then shifts to a close-up of Bruce Springsteen singing Born in the USA. Then there's a protest in Washington, D.C., and a close-up on people wrapped in blankets, trying to sleep on the ground. Men and women left behind by the richest country in the world. From there, it moves to a bustling New York street scene with skyscrapers and yellow taxis and pedestrians crammed shoulder to shoulder. New York. Finally, about six minutes in, the narrator introduces our main character. He's the guy from the title, The Man from Fifth Avenue. And he's the reason I'm obsessed with this Soviet documentary. This is my room. I've been living here for His name is Joe Mori. After a brief tour of his apartment, he walks around outside showing off some Manhattan landmarks. I'm standing in the square opposite the Plaza Hotel, one of the most expensive That's pretty much how the whole thing goes. A seemingly random, middle-aged New Yorker talking about his life and his city. It's hard to imagine that anyone would care that much. But in 1986, Joe Morey would find himself at the center of a Cold War maelstrom. He takes the Soviet film crew on a tour of poverty and homelessness, a goldmine for Soviet propaganda. But it probably wasn't an America most Americans would recognize. Over and over again, the theme is pounded home. The American ruling class is indifferent and scornful about the plight of the poor. People on both sides of the Iron Curtain were trying to figure out whose side Joe Mori was really on. It was all a huge mystery, with geopolitical stakes. But not long after he caught the world's attention, he vanished from the public eye. And that mystery? It never really got solved. How did an ordinary American become a Soviet icon? And who was the man from Fifth Avenue, really? What I found out is a whole lot wilder than I'd ever imagined. It's a story of foreign intrigue, a forbidden relationship, and a man who might have been playing everyone. In the Soviet Union, Maury is a movie star. Portraying himself as a down-and-out New Yorker, he has spent a month in Moscow criticizing life in the United States. Does he feel exploited? Of course not. I know they want to use me, but I'm using them too. This is the season finale of One Year, 1986. The Man from Fifth Avenue. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When I searched for Joe Morey in old newspapers, I didn't find much. Just a couple of short articles from the early 1960s about a small-time actor with bulging muscles. 
Then nothing. Until the mid-80s. That's when Iona Andronov entered the picture. I reached Iona at his apartment in Moscow. But in the 80s, he was a reporter in New York. He worked for Literaturna Gazeta, the largest weekly newspaper back home in the Soviet Union. One day in September 1985, he was out for a walk on Manhattan's Upper West Side when he saw two women handing out flyers. Bypassers didn't take any, but I did, because as a journalist, I was interested. Those flyers were about a man who lived nearby on West 70th Street. His name was Joe Morey. They said he was the victim of an enormous injustice. Maury had lived in the same building for 12 years, paying $98 per month for a tiny 54-square-foot room. But now, his landlady was evicting him so she could use that space as a sewing room. This area was being cleared of the poor. It was called gentrification. A bunch of American publications had written about Joe Maury's pending eviction. He said his landlady had offered him $5,000 to get out. But Maury had refused. He said, this is my home. Now, he was getting kicked to the curb, and it didn't seem like he had anywhere to go. He was a heart-tugging symbol of the downside of the booming housing market, a longtime resident on the road to homelessness. And thanks to Iona Andronov, the Soviet press was on the case. Iona was always on the lookout for this kind of story. He specialized in articles that made America look bad. He'd published claims that the CIA tried to assassinate Pope John Paul II and was breeding killer mosquitoes for biological warfare. Iona's counterparts in the American media considered him a straight-up propagandist. The Washington Post went further, reporting that U.S. intelligence identified him as an outright KGB agent. Iona called that a slanderous allegation. I repeat myself, I have never been involved in espionage, and they didn't even try to recruit me. He did see himself as a combatant in an information war. And this Joe Maury thing seemed like great ammunition. A story about American inhumanity and rampant capitalist greed. Yes, I decided that with Joseph, I could stick it to the Americans, who only trash us and don't show an objective picture. Joe Maury's address was on that flyer. And Iona was right in front of the building, a five-story brownstone. He climbed up the old wooden stairs, all the way to the top floor. And there were four doors there. I knocked on the first, then the second. No answer followed. Then I put my ear to another door and heard some noise. <laughs> Joe Mori opened the door. He was in his mid-50s, broad-shouldered but scrawny. And he was wearing a raggedy-looking checkered shirt. He asked what I wanted. I said that I was a Russian reporter for a popular Moscow weekly newspaper and that I was interested in his story. A lot of Americans would have turned their backs as soon as they heard Russian reporter. But Joe Mori invited Iona inside and answered all his questions. Iona had the story, a close-up look at American cruelty. He wrote one short article for his newspaper, which got delivered to an audience of millions back in the USSR. And that probably would have been the end of it. But then, something unexpected happened. So I got a call in my apartment from the Soviet diplomatic mission in New York, and I was politely told they wanted something from me. What they wanted was an introduction to Joe Mori. And this was more than just a polite request. It was a command from the Central Committee of the Communist Party and the KGB. Why would people at the highest levels of the Soviet government 
take such an interest in a guy getting evicted from his apartment? Well, in the mid-1980s, the Cold War was still extremely frigid. This is the emergency broadcast system. We are under attack by conventional forces of the Russian army. It is believed Just look at what was showing in American movie theaters. There was Red Dawn, where some plucky high schoolers fight back against a Soviet invasion. Not bad for a bunch of kids, huh? Mama'd be real proud. In Rambo First Blood Part Two, Sylvester Stallone goes to war with communist baddies in the jungle. You may scream. There is no shame. And there was Stallone again in Rocky IV. It's a better war! No holds barred in Moscow! Wearing red, white, and blue trunks, Rocky Balboa goes to battle against the machine-like Ivan Drago. Audiences everywhere saw that bout as a proxy for the Cold War. Americans have joyfully paid over $100 million to see their hero turn a Bolshevik into Borscht. And the real-life Soviets are seeing red. Let Rambo or Rocky shoot and fight bad American guys. It wasn't just Hollywood. The U.S. government and media shined a light on Soviet dissidents getting sent off to labor camps. And the Soviets... They had their own cards to play. They would take anything that they thought could be used against the United States. David Satter is the author of Age of Delirium, The Decline and Fall of the Soviet Union. The picture that, you know, this was a country with a few rich people and millions living in abject misery, suffering under the yoke of capitalism. In recent years, the Soviet media has said much about the American way of life. It emphasizes violence, drug abuse, unemployment, and overall exploitation of the American people by the government. In the mid-1980s, the Soviets focused on one particular sore spot, the American crisis of homelessness. Americans living in the shadows, on the heating grates, and in the doorways of big cities. More homeless on the streets this year than any time since the Great Depression. Real solutions to homelessness were hard to come by. But in 1986, the United States did make one grand gesture. Hands Across America was exactly what it sounds like. People raising awareness about homelessness and hunger by literally holding hands. Last official count, more than 4.9 million people took part in the human chain for America's homeless. Those who held hands shared the pride of believing their gesture will make a difference. But no matter how many people linked hands, homelessness was not going away in America. And the Soviets were eager to exploit that. As a countermeasure, they sent a whole group of filmmakers from Moscow to make a film about how a huge number of homeless people suffer in New York. That film was the reason the KGB reached out to Yona Andronov. They thought Yona had found their star. Joe Mori was the perfect symbol of America's disgrace. A literal average Joe, shoved into the streets by the invisible hand. Yona did as he was told. He connected the filmmakers to Joe Mori. But it was up to Mori to decide whether he wanted to cooperate. In the fall of 1985, he made his choice he was going to play a starring role in some Soviet propaganda. I told my landlady, when you put me out on the street, I'm going to go on a hunger And the man from Fifth Avenue, Joe Mori, is wearing a flat-billed cap and a dark jacket. He's tall and gaunt. It looks like he's missed more than a couple of meals. His room has cracking paint on the walls and a bare light bulb. A lot of what he says is overdubbed in Russian. But sometimes his voice breaks through clearly, like when he points out where his chair and table used to be. That street, by the way, wasn't Fifth Avenue, despite the title of the movie. Joe actually lived on the other side of Central Park. The camera follows him as he roams around New York, talking with a musician who can't find work. Yeah, it's very difficult to get a job. He's a poor, unemployed man in a place swimming with abundance. 
This is the era of Wall Street excess. And in New York, conspicuous consumption is everywhere. The people are getting and grabbing more and more money because they become diseased. It's like... There are images of horse-drawn carriages, women in fur coats, and panhandlers begging for food. I've been out here for three years, been to the women's shelter. I'm tired of going there. They would like the garbage trucks to pick them up, throw them in garbages, grind them up, and dumping in the city. Joe Mori is articulate and unsparing, a spokesman for the working class, venting about the ugliness of American inequality. He's also delivering Soviet talking points with a New York accent. It's unclear if he's a true believer or if he knows how his words are going to be used. As he wanders around the park near the end of the documentary, he sounds more wistful than calculating. This is the tree I'd like to put a hammock in. But I don't know, I think it's a little too big. Joe Mori tells the Soviet camera guys that they've been good friends, that he hopes to see them again. He waves goodbye when he crosses the street as Glenn Campbell's voice swells in the background. Where do you go when there's nowhere to go and you don't want to be where you are? After the picture fades, an epilogue appears on screen. It says in Russian, on November 22nd, 1985, Joe Mori was evicted from his room near Fifth Avenue in New York. A little more than four months later, on April 2nd, 1986, the man from Fifth Avenue premiered on Soviet television in prime time. The documentary was a sensation. I wouldn't like to live there. It's a cruel city. What Soviet viewers get is an American grotesque, a country where no sane person would want to live. Russians who saw the film got the message. In America, if you have money, you're somebody. If you don't, you're nobody. In the United States, Joe Mori had been nobody. But now, in the Soviet Union, he was definitely somebody. Soviet television even publicized a letter-writing campaign in sympathy with Americans like the so-called Man from Fifth Avenue. Maury got swamped with invitations to come and visit the USSR. So, in the summer of 1986, he made another fateful decision. He headed off to the Eastern Bloc. The Soviet Union is trying to gain propaganda mileage from a visit by a homeless man from New York City. 56-year-old Joseph Mari is an unemployed American who calls himself a campaigner for the downtrodden. He is also a national celebrity and new household word here in Moscow. Mori's month-long trip was paid for by Soviet trade unions. His escort was the man who'd knocked on his door, Iona Andronov. Here are some photos of us at factories and such. I was going with him to places, and of course, I advised him on what to say. Joe Mori stood outside the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, where he brought out a petition to pause all evictions in New York. Soviet television also showed him watching the documentary for the first time. Near the end of the screening, he broke down in sobs. And Iona put his hand on his shoulder to comfort him. Mori said there was nothing about the Soviet Union that disappointed him. I see a, a human, humanitarian quality among people, something that it's missing in my own society. Mori's words, and the documentary itself, were testaments to the USSR's moral superiority. The Soviet government liked to brag that homelessness didn't exist within its borders that everyone in the entire nation had a roof over their head. But that was a lie. When author David Satter lived in the USSR, he saw homeless people everywhere. You know, around garbage dumps, or they would be hitching rides on trains. A lot of them ended up in labor camps, but then they were released and they had nowhere to go. Of course, they didn't say anything about that on television. For Soviet officials, that reality was something to be hidden. And it wasn't the only thing they downplayed. There has been an accident at the Chernobyl atomic power station. One of the atomic reactors was damaged. The consequences of the accident are being taken care of. The Soviet Union had tried to keep Chernobyl a secret. 
But in April 1986, the world figured out that something had gone horribly wrong. The Chernobyl meltdown and explosions discredited Soviet officials, both abroad and domestically. The Soviet people became more skeptical of government propaganda. So when Joe Morey spoke at factories and schools a few months later, he didn't get a totally free pass. What exactly is your profession? This man wanted to know. Several questioners asked, why didn't you save any money? But at a time when the Soviet Union was desperate for some good PR, Joe Morey was a handy guy to have around. A regular American saying the U.S. was broken and that the USSR seemed pretty okay. Morey was valuable to the Soviets because he'd been anonymous, a man whose own country had seen him as disposable. But in 1986, he became a very public figure in both Moscow and New York. Joseph Maury is coming home. He does hope to have gotten the attention of those whom he says ignored the man from Fifth Avenue until he showed up at the Kremlin. That role has made him a household name abroad and a controversial figure here at home. Joe Maury flew back to the United States on August 31st, 1986. When he got there, he found himself being portrayed as a kind of penniless Benedict Arnold, selling out the stars and stripes for the hammer and sickle. The New York papers fanned out to interview his outraged neighbors. One of them, a Korean War veteran, said, I'd like to rearrange his fanny for him. Journalists dug into every aspect of Maury's life, and they turned up some surprising stuff. First, they found that Joe Maury wasn't really unemployed. The New York Times said that he had a job in their mailroom, but according to the head of the mailers union, he simply didn't want to work. If he was to show in tomorrow, he could go to work and with uh, a union scale before taxes of some $680 a week. Maury responded that he couldn't work regularly due to chronic hepatitis. Then there was another claim that Maury was never in danger of being homeless. The New York papers reported that he had a lease on a second apartment, a place above a Cuban restaurant on Columbus Avenue. Maury said his estranged wife lived there alone. The media didn't find those explanations convincing. Time magazine called him the great pretender. The New York Daily News branded him the con man from Fifth Avenue a triple-plated phony, a liar, and a fraud. So what was the truth about Joe Maury? Was he really just a random guy who got caught up in something he didn't understand? Was he a con artist or a double agent? Or did he have some other agenda, a secret motivation that explained everything? There was a line that Maury used a lot in 1986. He said it whenever someone asked him if he was getting exploited by the Soviet Union. I know they want to use me, but I'm using them too. I'm using them too. He was always upfront about that, that he had some kind of master plan. But back in 1986, no American journalist ever figured it out. To solve the mystery of the man from Fifth Avenue, I need to go straight to the source the only person who could give me the answers I was looking for, Joe Maury himself. Hello. Hey, Joe, it's Josh. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, okay, I can hear you pretty good. We'll be back in a minute. When I started reporting this story, I didn't know if Joe Morey was alive or dead. He was in his mid-50s in 1986, which would make him 90-something today. No American media outlet had spoken to him in decades. And when I tried to reach him on an old New York phone number, I never got an answer. Then, back in the spring, I tried another number, one associated with a relative. This time, someone actually picked up. When I asked if Joe Morey was around, 
They said they'd tell him that I'd called. So the man from Fifth Avenue was alive. And about a week later, he called me. After that, we started talking pretty regularly. Maybe today we could just kind of have a short chat. I could just ask you a couple things. Mm-hmm. Like, where did you where did you grow up? Born in Connecticut. What year? Oh, a long time ago. <laughs> Joe did eventually give me a year, 1929, which means he's around 93. Over the last few months, we've done three longer interviews over the phone. We also met once in person, in an outdoor garden in Manhattan. He was wearing a mask, but I still recognized him right away. His baseball cap looked identical to the one he wore in The Man from Fifth Avenue. When he walked over to say hello, he was in a peppy mood. I'm doing pretty good for my age, right? You're doing incredibly well for your age. Okay. My just... processing time is a little slower than it used to be. I could do three things at one time, but now I labor slowly over one. What are you going to do? Joe is still incredibly mentally sharp. And in our conversations, I asked him to walk me through what he'd been thinking in 1986, what his motivation was to play along with the Soviets, and what he meant when he said, I'm using them too. It turns out there's something important about Joe's past that nobody really dug into back in 1986. That trip he took to the Soviet Union after he starred in The Man from Fifth Avenue, that wasn't the first time he'd visited the USSR. He'd actually gone decades earlier. And that was no ordinary trip. It was a crazy caper. And it all started with Joe's muscles. Growing up, he was obsessed with getting strong. So in the late 1940s, he drove cross-country to America's beefcake mecca. Now if you're thin and scrawny is a billiard cue, and your gal won't tumble, let me tell you what to do. Don't mope in the corner. Don't think she's out of reach. Just get up bright and early and get out to Muscle Beach. Joe moved into a cheap crash pad in Santa Monica, California, called Muscle House by the Sea. He competed as a bodybuilder and dabbled in the performing arts. And in the 1950s, he got the chance for his first big break. I got what takes his time. I'll go for any time. I'm a fan. Joe landed an audition for Mae West as part of the chorus line of hunks in her Las Vegas stage show. A friend told him what to expect at his tryout. He told me when you go over there, she's going to be in a negligee, a low cut, and she's going to drop a handkerchief, and you have to look down at her when she bends over to pick it up. That you're longing and looking for her. Uh-huh. You'll get the job. And so I played the game. He got the gig, and a bunch more, at a burlesque club in New Orleans, in the musical Lil Abner on Broadway, and as a bit player in a Hollywood epic. Elizabeth Taylor as Cleopatra, Siren of the Nile. By the early 60s, Joe was living in New York and hoping to get cast in bigger and better roles. To make that happen, he needed to become a student of his craft. And I wanted to be an actor. And I knew they had good theater in Moscow, and then then I became fascinated. Joe wanted to go as deep as possible and read the leading Russian acting theorists and their original language. So he bought some Russian lessons on cassette. On Americanets. On Americanets. The more he read and heard, the more captivated he became with Russia and the less he cared about becoming an actor. He started fantasizing about this faraway place with its different culture and political philosophy. Whether in communist headquarters in Odessa on the Black Sea or in the Hermitage Art Gallery in Leningrad, every activity is controlled by directives that originate under the gold domes of the Kremlin. Joe dreamed of seeing those gold domes for himself, and he didn't really trust the strident anti-communists at home. He considered himself a free thinker, and he wanted to evaluate the Soviet system with his own eyes. I was still curious and interested in what was going on here because it seemed like the mentality was different, 
but there was a lot of control. But it was still interesting because they had that thing about togetherness. The people felt they were all in it together. Back then, not long after the Cuban Missile Crisis, it wasn't easy for an American to go to the Soviet Union. But Joe stumbled upon a way to get there. They saw this ad, a cheap tour from Sputnik, you know? And so I got that thing and I got a visa for a month. Sputnik was an official Soviet travel agency. They booked him a flight to Moscow in July 1964. But the agency's tours weren't designed to let visitors form their own opinions. Joe and his group attended compulsory lectures on the glories of socialism. He felt bored and antsy. So one day, he slipped away and took his own unauthorized tour of the city. But they didn't have much in the stores and all that stuff. But most of the people were very friendly. They were curious because, you know, they didn't know anything about America. It was very little. While everyone else in his group just stuck to Moscow, Joe wanted to see more of the country. He got grudging permission to go to the resort town of Sochi, one of the few other places that foreigners were allowed to visit. To Joe, it seemed like paradise. He swam and sunbathed. And on his second day at the beach, he spotted someone who would change his life. A young woman with a beautiful tan. Well, she was about five feet tall, and she was blonde and blue-eyed, and she was good-looking, you know. Her name was Ala. Ala grew up in the countryside, but was about to move to Moscow to work as an English teacher. She took Joe to places that tourists didn't usually get to see. She would show me about the where they threw all the junk and the garbage and go to these places where they had nothing to sell except some uh, potatoes and cabbage and things like that. His time with Allah in Sochi lasted for just a handful of days. Joe's month-long visa was about to expire. It was time to go home. But instead of catching a flight back to the U.S., he did something audacious. He got a room in a Moscow hotel and just camped out. And you paid on the floor every day. You paid three, three rubles, which is very little money at that time. And they wondered, who's this guy in this room all these weeks? He, American, what is he doing over here? What he was doing was continuing his tour of Moscow. His guide was the English teacher, Allah. I had feelings for her. She was very sympathetic, and she was a simple type of girl from the village. And she had no pretenses, and it was, everything was up front. And so, was uh, she different than American women? Oh, yeah, she was different. Because you could see right through, you know, here in America, they have a facade. So I liked her, you know. But I stayed on and on, and she was, but she was very naive, too, you know. You guys both thought, we like each other. Why should there be anything to keep us apart, right? Yeah, it was this mentality, American mentality. If I have, I have a lot of freedom in America, and so why can't in a personal relationship, you know? Why can't I do what I want to do? Yeah, and so that's a big problem. Joe's problem was that he was in Russia illegally. His visa had expired, and the police were getting suspicious. I learned about the state. Then I started really learning about the police. They know everything. Joe discovered that someone had come into his hotel room and searched his bag. On a Sunday night, he slipped away to meet Allah at a small house she'd rented in the countryside. And then I had to get back to the hotel because I knew they were going to catch me. And I saw that she was sleeping. And I looked at her and I said, this will be the last time you'll ever see her like this. When he returned to the hotel the next day, there were four men in the lobby. They were waiting. The police, you know, like Doberman pinchers, they were sitting down. Joe walked out of the hotel. And those four men followed him. He played it cool for as long as he could bear it. And then, suddenly, he headed underground into Moscow's metro system. Now, he sprinted down the stairs. And they were chasing me, and I'd go down to the bottom, hoping to catch a train before they can get it. And then I wouldn't see a train, so I'd run up the, up the and they would be still coming down the, behind me. And this game went on for two or three hours. Joe managed to get away. When he caught his breath, he went to see Allah to tell her the police were on his tail. He also confessed to her that he'd overstayed his visa. That meant she might be in trouble too, for harboring a fugitive, maybe even a potential spy. 
The police caught up to Joe pretty quickly after that and ordered him to leave the country. He ended up regrouping in Denmark, but he just couldn't stay away. Well, I want to see what happened to the girl. Did they find out about her? A couple of months later, he snuck back into Russia as part of a contingent from the Danish Communist Party. When he got there, he dropped a postcard for Allah in his hotel mailbox. Joe told her to meet him in a train station at a specific day and time. That was a big mistake. Just as I was coming in to see her, another train pulled in and she got off the train and, and she went by, passed me by, and she said, they know everything. Joe was placed under arrest and taken to a police station. Allah got brought in, too. And they got her, and they beat her up real good. I heard her screaming in another room. Screaming, yeah. But she was a very strong person. They got released separately. After that, they saw each other one more time, very briefly. She said that counterintelligence officers had come to her school and told her to stay away from him. The next day, Joe got escorted to the airport by three Soviet agents. And they gave me something to drink, and I stupidly drank it. And then I get, when I got on the plane, I got a terrible rash. It wasn't to kill me, but it was to warn me, don't come back here again. Back home in New York, Joe sent Allah letters and packages, but he never heard anything back. He decided that he didn't want to be muscular anymore and started losing weight. He got work packing and loading copies of the New York Times, made a home for himself on the Upper West Side. Decades passed, and his adventure in Russia became a fading memory. In the 1980s, he was living on West 70th Street when his landlady told him she was turning his tiny apartment into a sewing room. He was going to be evicted. And then, one day, without any warning, a man named Yona Andranov knocked on his door. When he said, I'm a journalist from uh, Russia, I knew right away that I would be going back to Russia. So as soon as Yona knocks on the door, I knew. Let's take a quick break. Back in 1964, Joe Morey had been warned never to return to the Soviet Union. But now, in the 1980s, his fortunes had changed. A bunch of Soviets had showed up out of nowhere and cozied up to him. They wanted Joe to talk about his eviction, which he was happy to do. He wanted his landlady to get bad publicity. And if the Soviets used that story for anti-American propaganda, he was okay with that so long as it got him where he needed to go and to the person he needed to see. She was the only friend I had over there, you know? And when I left, I knew if I ever want to get back, I have to play a certain game. The game Joe was playing would take him back to the USSR to see what had become of Allah. But he wasn't about to share that plan with anyone. He worried that the Soviet police would dig up his records and discover he'd been kicked out of the country in 1964. So he kept quiet and bided his time, even as his scheme started to click into place. This week, the Soviet publicity machine has been showing Joe Morey beating the people of the Soviet Union. There have been receptions in Moscow. He has toured Soviet factories. Many Soviets have shaken his hand. They gave me this tremendous tour all over Russia in real good hotels and and I even went to the best restaurants and all that. Joe wasn't dining out alone. The Russian journalist who'd started this whole escapade was by his side. A whole publicity tour was organized for him here. He and I were accepted in the Kremlin by the chairman of the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet. There were pictures on the front pages in all the newspapers. Yona Andronov wasn't a passive observer. Whenever Joe gave a speech at a factory, he was reading Yona's words. You see, he would always be there, and he would tell me the line to follow. 
I was playing a game. Joe genuinely believed that the U.S. hadn't done enough to deal with the crisis of homelessness. But he knew that some of Yona's lines were just propaganda. We have no homeless in Russia, which is nonsense. They have a lot of homeless people. Was it selfish of you to to go there and and say those things just because you wanted to get back to Russia yourself? Selfish, yeah. Because that's America. People are self-centered and selfish. You know that. <laughs> so you would put yourself in that category? No, I'm not really selfish because I wasn't in it for the money. I didn't care. I, I'm more interested in learning than, you know, making some money. Joe may not have been in it for the money, but he says the Soviets were ponying up. And they even opened up a bank account for me. I told you that, right? You see, we went one day to the bank on Gorky Street, it was called at that time. And they took me through the back, to the back door. That Russian bank account wasn't the only thing that Joe got offered. They wanted to set me up and give me an apartment. They had an apartment all set for me and uh, a car and the whole routine. They were setting me up for a defection, you see. Did you consider it? No. I wasn't going to do that. But I never spelled it out exactly what I was up to. Joe did finally reveal what he was up to when the tour reached Leningrad. He and Yona went out for a walk in a public park. When the two men were alone, Joe explained that he had an ulterior motive. There was a woman he needed to track down. He worried that he'd gotten her in trouble back in the 60s and wanted to make sure she was okay. Of course, I didn't know it. It was a surprise. Her name was Allah Galupova. Finding Allah wasn't on Yona's itinerary, but he called on his connections in the Soviet government. And what he heard back wasn't promising. She's not found anywhere. What happened? Did she die? Is she hiding? So I was confused. But then, one of Iona's colleagues got an unexpected phone call. It was from a woman named Albina. She'd seen the man from Fifth Avenue. And when a man in a flat-billed cap showed up on screen, she was stunned. Iona called the woman to check out her story. She said she was an English teacher and that she'd once gone by Allah. She changed her name to Albina because she thought it was prettier. <laughs> I tell Joseph, let's take a cab, buy a bouquet of flowers. Let's go. This was the moment Joe had been waiting for. After 22 years, they were going to be reunited. That woman, this Albina, I went to her house and I saw how they were living and I saw how primitive that place was and they were really poor. Albina had been married and divorced. She lived with her son in a meager one-room apartment, typically paltry accommodations for a Soviet school teacher. In 1964, she'd been so excited to start her career. In 1986, she looked beaten down. She told Joe that she'd never received his letters. They'd likely been intercepted before they got to her. I asked her, when did you get married? And she told me it was uh, maybe a year later after. And so she didn't remember me. In the U.S., Joe Morey was famous for being destitute. In the USSR, he was just famous. And Albina knew that if he stayed in Russia, the government might make him rich, giving him an apartment and a car. She could get those things, too, if he agreed to marry her. She'd suffered so much in the previous 22 years. Now, she saw Joe as a potential savior. We went to these, these uh, special stores and I bought her clothes. And she was very, I could see she was very greedy. And I could see she wanted me to take, she said, get the apartment. I could live in Moscow. Back in the 1960s, Joe had been drawn to her because she seemed different from American women, that she was less materialistic and didn't have a facade. Now, he thought that she was an opportunist, that she was using him. I knew I would never stay over there and live over there. And then at the end, uh, she was pissed off like mad because she wasn't going to get what she wanted. And she said, you're just a typical American. <laughs> 
Allah and Joe didn't rekindle old flames. They didn't get married. They didn't even really like each other anymore. In August 1986, they said goodbye, and Joe flew home to New York. His fellow Americans weren't thrilled to have him back. Oh, yeah, sometimes in the park they say, scream at me, they remember me. Uh, you communist. The newspaper headlines were even louder, saying the whole premise of the Man from Fifth Avenue documentary was a lie. The Joe was just too lazy to work and was never at risk of becoming homeless. He says that was just more propaganda, that he was made into a villain because of Cold War politics. They were infantile and stupid. They lied so much, it was like unbelievable. They distorted so much, you know. So they, they ganged up on me. Everybody had to get on top of it. And, but then, they, because, you know, they were so brainwashed, too. They were, both sides are brainwashed. One thing I can say for certain is that Joe did get evicted from his room on West 70th Street. But he didn't become homeless. As soon as he got kicked out, he moved into a place in a city-subsidized single-room occupancy hotel. A lot of people from the Upper West Side fought to get him that apartment. These Americans had cared about Joe, and they'd made sure his needs were met. Joe went back to Russia several times after 1986, both before and after the fall of the Soviet Union. On those trips, he'd stay with his friend Iona Andronov in Moscow. He'd get up in the morning and buy a bunch of newspapers and spend the day strolling around. By the 1990s, he was free to go wherever he wanted. During one of Joe's visits, he got word that Albina was sick. She had gotten cancer, and they said uh, she's dying. And so I went to see her before she died. He found her scrunched up in a chair in an oncology ward of a Moscow hospital. She died three weeks later, in October 1999. In the early 2000s, the story of Joe and Albina began to spread in Russia. But it was told as a beautiful fairy tale about star-crossed lovers kept apart by powerful forces. It painted their reunion as tearful and passionate, if ultimately doomed. That simpler, more romantic account came from Yona Andronov. It was published as a chapter in Yona's memoir with the title, The Russian Love of Yankee Joe. That version of the story is still getting told in Putin's Russia. In 2018, a talk show on state TV did a segment about Joe and Albina. And Joe was there, in Moscow, telling the Russian people what they wanted to hear. Я поехал в Сочи и познакомился с женщиной. Она была преподавательницей английского языка, россиянка, и я влюбился ее с первого взгляда. If you couldn't hear him under the dubbing, he said, I met this woman. She was a teacher of English, a Russian girl, and it was love at first sight. Yeah, for bullshit. It never was no love at first sight. They wanted that story. It's a big propaganda thing. Here's a guy, he comes and he finds happiness in Russia. He got evicted over there, and he came, and, uh, and he found everything that he needed. Joe Mori has spent his life on a quest for something flawless. The perfect physique, the perfect country, the perfect woman. In America, he had the freedom to do whatever he pleased, until some rich folks decided they liked his block. In the Soviet Union, he found a system that was supposed to nurture everyone, but wanted to control everything he did. And there was Allah. Maybe he could have loved her in some alternate timeline. But in this world, they were too far apart. Well, I'll tell you something. I, I, as I, I, the movies run still in my head, you know? And... Uh, it was an adventurous tale, by the way, and I learned a lot, but it's not important anymore, you know, because I'm an old guy, and the most important thing for me is to be able to walk and don't fall on my head and things like that. At 93 years old, he has a pretty simple routine. He still lives on the Upper West Side and likes to spend time in the park. These days, when he goes for walks, 
he covers his face with a mask. And I, and I don't want to be known. I want to be like a shadow. I want to just go everywhere and nobody know. I just look like a broken down old man that never was. And that's, that's it. If you're a fan of the show, I'd love for you to sign up for Slate Plus. The support of Slate Plus members is crucial to our work. Members also get to listen to one year without any ads. And now that our season is over, you'll get a special behind the scenes episode with me and senior producer Evan Chung, explaining how we made our season on 1986. Look out for that next week. And if you sign up now, you can get the first three months of your membership for just $15. To get that deal, go to slate.com slash one year plus to join Slate Plus today. That's slate.com slash one year plus. So this is usually the place where we try to entice you with a preview of our next episode. But since that was our season finale, I'm going to try to entice you with something different. A whole new season of one year. That new season is going to be a blast from the much more distant past. 1942. 1942 was the most tumultuous year of the 20th century, a moment when the U.S. faced unprecedented economic, cultural, and social upheaval. We're really excited to bring you those stories, and we want your help. Send your story ideas to oneyearatslate.com. And if you're around in 1942, we would love to hear from you. You can leave us a message on the one-year hotline at 203-343-0777. That's 203-343-0777. One Year is written by me, Josh Levine. Our senior producer is Evan Chung. This episode was produced by Sam Kim, Derek John, Sophie Summergrad, Jana Pasheva, Madeline Ducharme, Evan Chung, and me. It was edited by Evan Chung and Derek John, Slate's senior supervising producer of narrative podcasts. Our senior technical director is Merritt Jacob. Holly Allen created the artwork for this season. Thank you to Wyatt Andrews, Tatiana Arhipsova, Michael Dobbs, Serge Schmeyman, Adam Higginbotham, Eric Kober, Deborah Rand, Michael Kaufman, Joanne Levine, Sylvia Lee, and John Manjin. And special thanks to everyone who helped make our third season of One Year possible. Joel Anderson, Sol Worthen, Susan Matthews, Christina Cotarucci, Shannon Paulus, Katie Shepard, Hilary Fry, Bill Carey, Katie Rayford, Ben Richmond, Caitlin Schneider, Cleo Levin, Seth Brown, Rachel Strom, Janae Desmond Harris, Karen Fielman, Jessica Seidman, and Alicia Montgomery, Slate's VP of Audio. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with our first episode on 1942 very soon.